So uh, my name's Will. I'm not one of the pastors. Um, they had a uh, <laughs> they had a pastors retreat, planning retreat this uh, this past week. So I'm your substitute. Um, and like any good substitute, I was going to show us a movie, but they didn't have a VCR upstairs for our Veggie Tales, so I had to prepare something. It's a lot more work that way, but we do what we can. Um, so. Talk about Walmart for a second. Um, I'm a Walmart fan, Ashley and I, my wife. Um, we, we shop at Walmart for our groceries. Um, this, this message is sponsored by Walmart. Um, we go there because it's pretty cheap. They have just about everything we need. Uh, but when I we typically do grocery pickup because kids. Um, but when we do go inside and pay, we use the self-checkout like 100% of the time. And uh, that's because it's, it's just faster, it's easier, it's, uh, I think it's better. I hate waiting in line, waiting for someone to slowly scan all my items for me. Um, the system, like for a self-checkout, if you've ever used Walmart self-checkout, it's really intuitive. You, you, know, you go up, you literally, all you have to do is scan your stuff, put it in a bag, insert your card, you're done. It's what we call intuitive. It's, it works the way you expect it to. There's no friction, it doesn't slow you down, you don't have to push extra buttons that you don't need to. Um, you're in, you're out, and boom, you're done. But every once in a while, uh, I go to a different grocery store and I make the mistake of using their self-checkout <laughs> aisles. And if you've ever used one of these, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, you get started and it yells at you if you don't put something in the baggage area. And then if you take it out before you're supposed to, it's like you stole it. and. Um, alarms start going off on the screen. Uh, and if, you like, you, if you're like me, I just like, I'm done scanning, so I just insert my card. Well, at the non-Walmart self-checkouts, it's, it doesn't do anything. It's not smart enough. I'm just standing, standing there staring at this dumb little screen. It's not doing anything. And, I'm like, and then it's like, I look at the other screen. It's like, oh, you have to push this button. And I'm like, oh, come on. Um, it's not intuitive. It's counterintuitive. It slows you down. It has extra steps. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work the way that, uh, that you would expect. It's creating friction when you're looking for ex efficiency. And that idea of counterintuitive, uh, being counterintuitive, we experience stuff like that all the time, whether it's a product that doesn't work the way we expect because it's poorly designed. Um, but sometimes you experience the counterintuitive in a different way, in a way that's not bad, not, not because it was poorly designed, but because you enter a context, like let's say you travel to a different country, and the things that, that need to happen, that you need to do are different than what you expect, like the, the, uh, how you greet people, how you drive on the road. It's counterintuitive to what you expect. I don't know if any, if any of you guys have ever been to Australia. Um, I haven't been to Australia, but I know plenty of people who have, and they drive on the other side of the road. And if you get in one of their cars, the driver's side is on, the driver's seat is on the, uh, on the right. And all the gizmos and gadgets in there are reversed. Uh, it's, it's a counterintuitive setup. And even when you just do something as simple as crossing the road, um, naturally here, when you go to cross the road, you look to the left, because that's where the near side car is coming. Um, but if you do that in Australia, you could step out in front of a car, because it's come, gonna come from the other direction. If you wanted to live in Australia, you can't just say, all right, guys, I know I'm, I want to live here because of all, you know, for whatever reason, but you guys are going to have to change the way you do things. You're going to have to 
You're going to have to start driving on the correct side of the road. You're going to have to switch all your cars um, because I want it to be that way. That's, that's not how it works. It's counterintuitive because that's just the way it's done there. And if you want to live there, you have to adjust to it. Um, and the Christian life is filled with counterintuitive realities. The Christian life is a whole new world compared to who we were before we were saved. Everything is different. So we're in the middle of a series in 1 Peter, and we've been learning that because of Jesus, we, the church, are a whole new people. That God has made us new. And that life is counterintuitive to the way we're used to, not because we've moved to a different country, not because we've gone somewhere else, but because we've changed. That because we've been born again in Christ, everything changes. Our natural reactions and impulses have to change because we've changed. How we interact in our everyday relationships is different because we're different. How you interact with each other, with the government, with your family, with your friends, with your enemies, it's all new because of Jesus, even if it's counterintuitive, even your relationship with your boss. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Today we're going to see how following Jesus leads to a a counterintuitive relationship with your boss, especially if you have a, a really bad boss. And as we'll see, Peter says that we must respect and obey our bosses, even if they're unjust. That God has called us to endure, endure injustice at work for his glory. So, if you have your Bibles or your phone, please turn to uh, 1 Peter 2, 18. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the, the verses up here. Um, and we can follow along. We're going to read and then we'll pray and get started. So let's read. Starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his sins, by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Lord, this is a weighty, hard, difficult command. 
you've given us. Help us to see it clearly. Help us to understand your word to us. Help us to understand how we should relate to our bosses in a way that honors you. Open our eyes to see. Give us faith to believe. And give us strength to obey. We're trusting you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we're going to look at three things from this passage. Uh, one is, what is God asking us to do? Why is he asking us to do it? And how do we do it? So first, what? What is he asking us to do? So first I want us to look at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. I should have mentioned beforehand that this is for just for servants, so if none of you are that, you can just kind of tune out for the next 30 minutes or so. No, I'm just kidding. We're, we'll have VeggieTales in the back for you. No. So if, this is, if, he's, if he's referring to servants, and none of us are servants, does this still apply to us? Uh, and I'm going to argue it does, and all the commentaries are going to argue that it does. It's really hard to make an argument that it doesn't apply to us. And the reason for that is because the servant-master relationship of the ancient Near East and the employee-employer relationship of today has a lot of parallels. Uh, and really the main difference is that back then, well, well, the main difference is now, it's easier to get a new boss. That's really the main difference. Um, back then, if you were born into servitude and you, only, you had only the possibility of buying your freedom, it was a possibility, but unless you saved up the required amount or something else special occurred, you would be the servant of that person or family for life. But today, uh, if you want a different boss, you can just you know, transfer inside your company or get a resume together, apply to a bunch of other companies or start your own business. Um, you can change your boss more easily now, but Wherever you go, if you're working, you have a boss. Even if you're a business owner or self-employed, you technically still have a boss. Uh, they go by the name of customer or client. Um, if you want to stay in business, you kind of need those. They can't, and if you want to retain them, you have to kind of meet their demands satisfactorily or find the right boss, if you will, that uh, you're willing to work with. But functionally, they're your boss. If you fall into that category, I want you to see this passage through that lens, that they are, you work for them, you provide a service for them. So if you work, you have some kind of boss. And since Peter is talking about people who have a boss, and most of us in this room either have a boss or will have a boss or have had a boss, this applies to us. And in verse uh, 18 here at the end, Peter alludes to something we all know about bosses. Some bosses are good, some bosses are not. Some bosses care for you, will get to know you. Our understanding when hardship comes up, when you can't come in because somebody gets sick, will equip you for the job and will value your opinion. Those are great people to work for. I've worked for a number of them like that. Um, it's awesome. It's, it's, to not Dread coming in on, on Monday because of your boss is a great thing. But some bosses aren't like that. Some bosses don't care about you. Some bosses 
don't care about your situation at home, don't give you the tools you need to get the job done, and will dictate everything to you without valuing your opinion. And some bosses are worse than that. Some will actively hurt your chances. They won't recognize your hard work. They'll po purposely point out flaws without acknowledging the positive things that you've also accomplished. Some bosses are just jerks. The word that Peter uses is translated unjust, which we see there. It literally means crooked or perverse, meaning an unjust boss is clearly not the way that they should be. If there's a platonic ideal for a boss, they're the opposite, or pretty far in the opposite direction. Some of you have bosses like this or have had bosses like this, and I'm sure you could all share stories that would all make us cringe. Um, that's not the purpose of this morning, so I don't have, <laughs> I don't have any stories for you. Um, but Peter is clearly acknowledging that there are people like this out there, and which you recognize if you've had one uh, known a boss like this. That the, and the fact that he uses the term crooked or perverse means like when he tells us to subject ourselves, to, to obey and respect them, he's not saying pretend like it's okay that they're like this. It's wrong to be that way. To abuse your role as a boss is serious. And many of you can attest to the fact that it's really difficult to work for someone like that. It makes coming into, on Monday, one of the most dreaded, stressful experiences that just kind of bleeds into the rest of your, of your life. The weekend feels way shorter and way less restful when you have a bad boss. Your, your time with your family, if you have to work extra or whatever, it all kind of goes together when you have an unjust boss. It's a serious issue to have an unjust boss. But, or and, God's word through Peter is servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And we'll get to the reasons why, because he has reasons. But at first, I just want to see what he's telling us to do. God is telling us to be subject to someone who might yell at you if you make a minor mistake. He's telling you to respect someone who might purposely overlook you for a promotion even when you're objectively qualified for it. He's telling you to obey someone who might put a plan together that creates way more work than necessary or throws you under the bus. He's telling you to honor someone who might be bad-mouthing you behind your back. Instead of brazenly defying them, we must submit to do a good job under them. Instead of eviscerating them over the water cooler he's, or on the company chat, we refrain, should refrain from gossiping about them. This is hard stuff. If you have a lousy boss, this is really, really hard. Now, he's not telling you to do, obey your boss if they're telling you to do something morally wrong. And he's not telling you to cover up illegal activity. 
But he is saying that we should always be respectful even when we can't obey them. He's commanded us to honor everyone. That's what Pastor Greg went over last week. Even the people who do wrong, even when your boss is a jerk. So why? Why does God command something so hard, something so counterintuitive? Why do we have to do something that's unfair? Because it's not fair. That's not, that's not a fair thing to do. Why? So there's a couple different reasons that Peter gives for why he's calling us to do this. So I'll start with the, what I believe is the more, more fundamental foundational truths and then kind of work our way up. Um, the first one gets to the fundamental nature of who we are as believers, who we are as a church, like what we exist for. And we see that in verse 21. Peter says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. So we endure injustice because this is what we've been called to. This is what we're here for because we have an example in Christ. If you, and we exist to do that. He's made us to do that. He's called us for that. If you, if you remember, this isn't the, he's not just bringing this up randomly. This is kind of an application of a prior point from a couple weeks ago Pastor Don preached on. Uh, if you remember back in 1 Peter 2, 5, um, it says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We've been built for something. And, and he's, Peter uses the imagery of a temple and the role as priests, that we exist together as a temple of God, like the church, us as a people, exist as a temple of God and as priests to God. Now, if you remember, let's talk about the temple for a second. If you remember the temple from the Old Testament, it's where God manifested his presence. In the Old Testament, God chose to manifest his presence with the people of Israel in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, and until it became a kind of a permanent building, the temple where he manifested himself. If you wanted, if, if you lived back then and you wanted to be in the presence of God, you would go to a physical location. Pack your bags, travel up to Jerusalem, and go to the temple. And there's a robust sacrificial system if you wanted to get closer to the presence of God. And even then, you could only get so close because of the blazing holiness of God. But there was a real manifestation of God in the temple. Now, after the perfect sacrifice of Christ, the veil has been torn, and God no longer manifests himself in the physical temple because the forms and functions that God used before were shadows of what was to come. Because now, we, the church, the people of God, are where God dwells. We are his temple. If people want to meet God they come to his church. Now, that not that we are God, because we're not, but that God, by the Holy Spirit, is in us, working through us, transforming us to look more and more like Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul uses the same imagery in Ephesians 2, 19 
and 22, so we'll read that. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being in the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. If people want to meet God, they come to his church. We are a holy temple in the Lord. So when we're at work, that doesn't change. While trying to meet deadlines, we're still the temple of God. While putting out fires, we're still priests to God. While being chewed out by an unreasonable boss, we're still where people go to meet God. So in verse 21, when Peter says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps, it's not shocking. If we are the temple of God, if we are the body of Christ, then we have to represent him. We were called to this. 1 Peter 22 through 24, he, being Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If he didn't sin in response to suffering, then neither should we. If he didn't lie to avoid suffering, then neither should we. If he didn't revile people when they reviled him, then neither should we. If he didn't threaten people when they hurt him, then neither should we. If he entrusted himself to God, then so should we. If he died so that we might live, then we too should lay down our lives so that others might live. Now think about the worst person you've worked for and realize that your endurance of their injustice is a window into, into the heart of God. It's not fair to endure injustice. It's wrong for someone to mistreat and demean you. They don't deserve patience. They don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve forgiveness. But neither did you. It's big stuff. <laughs> the heart of God was willing to endure immense injustice so that mercy would win out. Jesus gave up his rights so that we could live. We wouldn't know the life that God offers in Christ if he was just fair. So why should we endure injustice? 
because we are the temple of God, the body of Christ. And we've been called to embody the counterintuitive heart of God because we are a window into the love and mercy of God. So the second main reason, that's the first reason for why. The second reason um, is that God loves it when we magnify his love and mercy. Uh, His praise and favor are on those who endure justice like, injustice like Jesus. We see that in verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's what the word gracious here means. The NASB translate this, translates this a little bit more clearly, which if you've ever read the NASB, I never thought I would say that in my life. Um, <laughs> is when it says, this brings favor with God. So you see that there, this, for this finds favor with God. God wants us to know that when we obey him for his sake, he loves it. He praises it. He favors it. He rewards it. If you remember, uh, Jesus said the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, um, the end of the Beatitudes, starting in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for you re- your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter was there for that. Peter got to hear that. And he got to live that out. And after, I don't know how many years, after uh, Jesus was crucified and rose again, he's still saying the same thing. After enduring suffering. God loves it. God rewards it. Jesus wanted us to know that God's joy is toward his people, that he'll reward his people for obedience and enduring hardship on his behalf. And in Matthew 6, the next chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Peter, or Jesus, four different times, talks about that our heavenly Father rewards a life lived towards him and our giving and our praying and our fasting. We're not doing it to be seen, but we're doing it for our Father. He loves that. God rewards that. He loves it when we do the right thing. Uh, But I want to clarify that this is not God's favor and reward towards salvation because we're not saved by obedience. We're we're saved by faith in Jesus. This isn't, we're not saved by enduring injustice. We're saved by Christ. So this, this reward, this favor that God offers towards those who obey is less like the favor extended to a sinner in need of salvation and more like the favor extended from a parent to a child who does what's right because the, the child wants to do what's right. And if you're parents in this room, you'll understand I only have a three and a one-year-old. A three-year-old does not do what's right a lot of the time. <laughs> when he does what's right because he wants to, not because we told him, it's just like, like your heart just explodes with joy. Um, you guys know what I mean, parents out there. That's kind of a reflection of that impulse that we get when when our child does what's right because they want to, and we want to reward that. That's a reflection of God's heart towards us in enduring injustice. 
So why should you endure injustice from your boss? Why should you respect someone who ignores your hard work? Why should you obey someone who doesn't give you the recognition you deserve? Because God wants you to know that he's not ignoring you. God won't refuse to give you the recognition you deserve. God celebrates your hard work. He commends your efforts. God's favor is with you. So, we've seen the what and the why. We're going to look at the how. How do we do this? How do we represent Christ at work? How do we do it in a way? How do we do it when we're enduring injustice? And there's two things that Peter points out in this passage. And they both have a, a God-centered nature to them, so we're kind of lumped them together. You'll see that. First, verse 20, we need to do good. What does it mean do well? It means like do good, be doing good things. For what credit is it if when you suffer, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So this is actually kind of like touching on, I don't know, a big theme. I could do a whole sermon on just like this idea of doing good. So it might not be something you've considered, so it's important to state God, that God's given all of us a job, job description that applies to any job that you have in any role or industry. Lost my place. <laughs> Your first and primary responsibility at work, no matter the role, no matter the industry, is to do good. If you can't do good in a role or industry because of the nature of the job, then you need to get a different role or job because you've been created by God to do good. Uh, Ephesians 6 Paul says the same thing in a similar, very similar section. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. We exist to serve. We exist to do good, to put others first, to serve like Jesus served. God loves it when you do good. He saved you to transform you into a person who would do good to reflect his goodness. And we see that in Ephesians 6. It says, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. If you can see the fact that you exist to do good for God's sake, then you can do good no matter who you work for. If you have a good boss, you can do good because it's for God. If you have a terrible boss, you can do good because it's for God. You can have the most mundane job, but if you do good in that role, then you can know that God loves it because that's what he created you for. So how do we endure injustice in the way that honors Christ? By commitment to do good for the Lord's sake. The second part that Peter points out 
verse 19, is that it's a God-focused endurance. It's not just a temperamental or personality-based thing. Then we see that it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So you may have a non-confrontational, generally submissive temperament. So you tend to keep going, even if your boss is a jerk. You may never really disobey or disrespect them. You just put your head down, do your job. But that's not really what he's talking about because you can do that and just be burning under the surface. You could be, you know, putting in your hours, coming home, and just complaining about your boss all day to your friends, your family. That could be the daily experience for, for some of you if you have a boss like this. If the only reason you haven't said anything to your boss's face is because you're not temperamentally inclined to do so, then that's not the endurance that, God, that Peter is talking about. Peter is saying that the kind of endurance that God favors is an intentional endurance, an endurance with God in mind, an endurance that says, I'm going to forgive my boss even though what they're doing is wrong because God has forgiven me. An endurance that says, I'm not going to slander them even if they've slandered me because Jesus won't slander me. An endurance that actively hands the injustice to God because God is the one who will ultimately make things right. So how do we endure injustice in a way that honors Christ? By having a Godward mindset, by actively praying at work for help and forgiveness, by actively praying for your boss, by actively thinking about Jesus' suffering on our behalf, his mercies towards us, his love towards us. The worship team can come up and join me. So these two things, the doing good and having a Godward mindset are important, and, and we need to do them. But if you're really dealing with a hard work situation, you, you need more than just things to do. So tomorrow's Monday. Most of us are going back to work tomorrow. And if you're going to endure, endure injustice tomorrow and the rest of the week in a way that honors Christ, you need more than just the willpower to hold on. You need something that will hold you. Trying to deal with the barrage of responsibilities you have and uh, all the fires you have to put out is hard enough without a boss that's mean or unfair or passive aggressive. Um, if you, you can feel like you're alone, having to deal with them because your family doesn't have to deal with them, your friends don't have to deal with them, you have to deal with them every week. But God's word from this passage is not just endure. It's also, his word from this passage is also found in verse 25 when he says, you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because you're not alone. You don't have to just hold on. 
because God is with you. A sheep uh, doesn't have to keep track of their shepherd. That's not, what they're, that's not what they're there for. A shepherd keeps track of his sheep. And now in Christ, you have a shepherd. Someone will hold on to you when you can't hold on any longer. Uh, hear these words from your shepherd in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how do we do this? How do you endure injustice at work? By resting completely on the mercies and love of Jesus. So let's pray. Father, Father, we can't do this. Um, This is impossible. Without you, we can't show people your mercy unless we know your mercy and see it and rely on it. Uh, We can't show people your love unless we're satisfied in your love. We can't endure, not in our strength, not unless we're resting on yours. Father, we need you. We want to show your glory as your temple. Help us to do that. And we're trusting you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.